I leave the building or a pandemic happens and I'm shut out of the building, I still have to be Papa John to the world. I still have to find a way, an entryway to share the gospel and the good news and to tell young men that the way God has blessed me and brought me through the things that I've lived through, I know there's a God. Don't you just love going into a room and there's that person in there that brings that positive energy, hugging everyone, and the friendliest person in the crowd? Well, that's my guest today, John Jarrett. I hope you enjoy this conversation as you get to know him more and his great story. Welcome to the Become a Provider podcast, a show about how people bless and protect others and how you can do the same. I'm your host, Justin Thomas. Let's begin. John Jarrett, a.k.a. Papa John, just is a friendly guy to all and including myself. But really, what I remember is you and your wife opening up your home and hosting a small group discussion around marriage and how to strengthen your marriage. I know that's a passion of yours. And so Amy and I, when we were first parents, uh, newly parents, uh, we brought over our like one two-month-old daughter and put her in your office and we would just learn from you guys. And what I, what we were provided for, what we were blessed by was the fact that you guys had such a heart for mentoring uh, younger couples and equipping us in our marriage and doing that by sharing your own stories. So uh, thank you for providing for me in that way. Uh, to God be the glory. Um, it's been an incredible journey. George and Tondra. Gregory sowed a seed into us about um, marriage ministry. And they're continuing with um, a program called Journey for Life. It's, um, it's a marriage um, platform that they use continually. However, they sowed the seed to us, the importance of giving back and getting in front of and <clears throat> fostering a safe place for married couples to just kind of unpack um, things in their lives and grow together. And we've been doing that for 15 years now. Well, it's fun to you know have this conversation with you because obviously I know you as the guy that uh, hugs everyone and loves on everyone. I'm sure that's tough for you during this uh, COVID-19 era of not being able to get in front of people yeah, like difficult. you're so accustomed to. Um, how did the nickname Papa John come about? So when I met Chanda, she had a little boy named Joshua. We were trying to figure out, we didn't <clears throat> want him to... Um, pick a name that he could call me as big brother or daddy or anything like that. I think Joshua was the one that um, decided to call me Papa John. And, and um, that was long before the pizza guy um, came around with Papa John's pizza. So I'm the original Papa John if the world needs to know. Um, I've been coined that for 20 years now, 20 plus years. And so I'm very thankful that I've lived up to my name as a papa with all of my children. 
We have a daughter that's 31, Joshua is 24, and Hezekiah is 19. So I've been a Papa John for 20, 20 plus years. Yeah, well, it fits you well. Well, to God be the glory, it's, <clears throat> I'm, I'm just really trying to learn from God how to be a good father, period. What was that experience like when you became a stepdad like that? It's funny. I had um, I had some rules. Um, my first marriage did not work out, and my daughter and I were <clears throat> trying to manage our our relationship from a distance. I had these rules that I wouldn't date anyone in my church, in my, on my job, and I didn't want to date anyone in my neighborhood. Well, you just make it hard was, on yourself. Yeah, Chanda was my neighbor, so I broke the third rule. <laughs> I fell in love with my neighbor. She, I saw that she needed me. She needed um, a protector. She needed a provider. Joshua's father walked out on him and her when he was one, two years old. And so it, it's kind of refreshing that we came together as a blended family and have been truly blessed and successful in um, raising my stepson and she mentoring and grooming and encouraging my step her stepdaughter, and we both have a son together, John Hezekiah. And so we're a blended family, and um, only by the grace of God um, do families, family units work together on that level. Only by the grace of God. And that's another thing. Kings Park has provided me with some quality relationships when it comes to marriage and family. It's just an incredible place. Well, it's so fun. That's how we connected through church, right? And, and sometimes people go to church just for a social means versus going there for, to worship God. And, and you can do both. And, and, that's, uh, and that should be the blessing of both, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, the thing that blew us away about King's Park to see big and small, black and white, worshiping God freely. You know, not <clears throat> a black side of the church or a white side of the church, but everybody just kind of mixed in together and giving God total focus. You know, forgetting your background, your past, your your circumstance, like I said, rich, poor, black, white, everybody was in there worshiping God together and that just blew us away. We knew that was the kind of community and environment that we wanted to raise our kids and God has true, tremendously blessed us with, like I said, families like the Falchucks and the, the Tuckers and, and the list goes on. So many are poured into our lives such an such a rewarding community and so you're a guy that everyone knows 
Like you go into a room and you're, you're, you know, like I said, hugging people and everyone knows your name. And yeah, I'm curious, how do you stay connected with so many people? Well, I don't know. It's, um, I'm, I'm just the kind of extrovert that loves to connect with people. I love people. I'm always looking for a way to start a conversation with, with anyone to have an opportunity to share the good news and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yesterday I, I was really stumped. I went to a gas station and there were, there was a car on one side that had three young men that were at the gas pump. And I was on the other side of the building um, getting gas. And so all three of them came around where I was. And, you know, it, it was the way they presented themselves it it wasn't a um i'm i'm a i'm a black man they're young black men and i would love to appeal to any young black man especially to encourage them about jesus but these guys um with the britches down and the expensive tennis shoes and the the way they presented themselves it was like a caution sign and i really shouldn't judge or be standoffish and uh, God used another sister that has, um, she's, she's a white lady and she has a son that has lots of piercings and tattoos. And, and I thought, you know, in my struggle, you know, I was not able to really reach them or I, w I didn't know how to start a conversation. So here's what they presented to me. They wanted me to come over the, to the other side and buy them some gas. They said, we pushed the car into the, the gas station and we have no money. And could you get us some gas? And I thought to myself, pull out my wallet, stick in my credit card. It's three of them, one of me. I probably could deal with them. But I, I chose in this moment to say, nah, I think you're going to need to call someone that you know, and they will be the ones to help you get gas. I'm not the one today. And I said that, but in my heart, my heart wanted to start a conversation about God has blessed me so much in my life and my marriage. I came, I, I grew up in a very rough community of Chicago, Illinois. I came down here to go to college. I met a beautiful woman and I stayed. And um, God, it's been progressive blessings and progressive revelations. And I think part of the wisdom of knowing how to navigate the streets of Chicago sometimes gives me a sense of caution when directly dealing with our youth. And then um, even flipping the coin when the sister called me and I know that her son is white and I know he's tattooed up 
if it had been three white guys with tattoos and their britches hanging down and loud music, I would have had reservations about helping them as well. But I still am praying and asking God to allow me to be a papa, even to our youth, because they need to know Jesus the most. It's, it's okay to partner with other men and families in Kings Park. But when I leave the building or a pandemic happens and I'm shut out of the building, I still have to be Papa John to the world. I still have to find a way, an entryway to share the gospel and the good news and to tell young men that the way God has blessed me and brought me through the things that I've lived through, I know there's a God. I would not even, my existence, <clears throat> you know, I told you a little piece about my health that they told me I'd never be off of diabetes medications. I'm not a diabetic anymore. It is documented. God has healed my body. I want every person on diabetes medication that feel hopeless, like I did at the beginning, to know that there are people like you and that God has given wisdom to know how to manage your diabetes and to overcome your health issues. God is able. I'm living proof that God is able. I'm so glad you experienced that joy of overcoming type 2 diabetes. And that brings me so much yeah, excitement to hear that, that it's, it's real in your life through the, the changes you've made to your lifestyle and diet. And that takes discipline. Oh, yes, it does. I was 348 pounds. I used to love to eat and eat good. But the discipline of going on an intermittent fast, one meal a day for a guy that loves to eat, that takes discipline. And how, what made you accomplish that feat? I mean, that's a huge feat. So, you know, annually our church goes on a, a fast and I had to find a creative way to be successful because of the health crisis I was living through. I needed to find a way that God could help me to give me wisdom. Uh, James 1 and 5 says, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God and God will give to you freely. And so I pursued God and God opened my eyes to understand that fasting and praying is very beneficial um, on both ends. Fasting allows your body to heal itself and catch up because we bombard our bodies with, oh my God, so many processed foods and, and hidden things that we, we have no idea what they're doing to the food to make it taste great. By the grace of God, he led me to alkaline foods, um, the drink, lemon water, to the electrolytes, the everything that went in my body, I had to be conscious. I had to enter into a discipline of paying attention to what I was consuming. I'm down to 280 pounds at the present, and my goal is to get under 200 pounds. It's a journey, didn't happen overnight, but slowly and carefully, the Holy Spirit has given me wisdom to know how 
to incorporate um, exercises and diet that's going to drive my numbers down to a point to where I, I don't want to be on any synthetic medication at all. And I'm going to tell everybody, God can do anything if you allow him, if you give him a chance. What made you finally say, hey, it's time for me to focus on my own health and wellness? Well, I wouldn't be here. Um, it's, it's humbling to look around and know the people, good people just like me, that are no longer here. One of my wife's cousins, her husband, just like me, um, had the same issues with high blood pressure and diabetes, and he's not here. Um, two years ago, we went on a cruise. <clears throat> he was in Duke Hospital in intensive care. I saw myself in, 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 in his shoes and, and said, God, I don't want to leave. I don't, wanna, I don't want my wife to have to go through seeing me live out my final days like that. I needed God's help desperately because I do love people and I do love connecting with folks and knowing that I can be a part of sharing my life and the joys that God have taken me through. Um, I could share the, the experiences with other people and it doesn't have to be uh, limited to black, white, one of the greatest relationships that Chanda and I have had the privilege of embracing was a Vietnamese family that came in my home, took over my kitchen. I mean, went in my refrigerator and went to digging and pulling and grabbing all the vegetables that they could and created this soup. My neighbor had um, <clears throat> brought me some fresh fish that he had caught and I'm I'm looking at this fish and I'm like, I'm not going to clean this fish. You know, I don't, I'm not into um, skinning and peeling fish. And <clears throat> so this Vietnamese couple came over and they had no problem taking that fish apart, putting it together and make it. We had a delicious soup like I've never had before. And the same has gone on when they've invited us to their home. They didn't want me to come and just sit. They said, you got to make your own egg rolls. So all of the bean sprouts and the chicken or beef or pork or whatever you wanted to put in your own egg roll, you had to make it yourself. And so they put me to work in their kitchen and I was like, well, this is the kind of experiences that I've enjoyed at Kings Park. People not just saying, um, I'll meet you at church on Sunday. No, they'll take you home and they'll put you to work in their kitchen. Or if I invite them to my house, they'll come and take over my kitchen and dig in my pots and pans and put together what they can find. And, and it's been a amazing experience to be able to do life with um, everybody. Fascinating. Did you know going into when, when you invited them over, like I'm picturing like, hey, you're inviting them over for dinner and you're going to prepare something. But did you know ahead of time that they said, hey, we're going to come over, we're going to cook you some Vietnamese food? 
No, I had no idea. My wife had just said that um, this couple was coming with their kids and and I was like, okay. You know, I didn't know what we were gonna put on and my neighbor had brought those fish and then the Vietnamese couple came in and and um, I'm like, what are we gonna do? They didn't have no problem saying, well, oh, oh, John, let me see what's in your refrigerator. They went, both of them, they went in just digging right through there and pulling out all of the onions and the carrots and the, oh my God, I just, I'm amazed that we even had the chicken stock to make the soup. Everything was there. God had provided everything that we needed. We didn't have to go out and get anything. Yeah, I love that story too, because it's, it's both uh, showing an ability to open up your home and a uh, heart to do that. And, and then also an ability to say, yes, and you, you received their gift to you versus saying like, oh, I got this, even though you really didn't, like, you know what you're going to do with that fish. <laughs> Truthfully, I don't know. My neighbor had never done anything like that. Just came over, brought some fish. And it was just God's timing and the perfect timing. He knew to sin in that moment because truthfully, I was not going to clean any fish. <laughs> but they knew exactly what to do and how to do it. And it was absolutely delicious. Well, I'd love, to, I'd love you to reflect on, maybe going back a little bit, about those key moments that someone specifically blessed or protected you that just change the trajectory of your life. Maybe it was when you're growing up in Chicago, maybe it was uh, afterwards. But as you think back on your story and your journey, what are some moments that maybe some mentors or people in your life blessed or protected you in a significant way? One of the most significant moments in my life was in my childhood. Growing up in Chicago, I lived in a community called Grove Heights. And our neighborhood bordered other neighborhoods that we always had tension, friction, and make a long story short, I was traveling to visit a friend and I left my community of Grove Heights and I went to, through a community called Burnside. And as I was traveling through Burnside, there were a group of boys on the left side of the, the street and I was on the right side of the street. And when they saw me, they made a beeline to my side. And I said, okay, maybe they're just traveling that way. I then began to go on the left side of the street and they traveled back on the left side. <clears throat> In that and, moment... And- how old are you at this point? I might have been 13. And in that moment, I realized there was no way out of this, that I was going to have to go through this. And, you know, part of growing up on the streets of Chicago, you, you figure out ways to survive. And so I knew the only way to go through this, I was going to have to figure out through body language and the way they were positioning themselves, I knew I had to take the leader out. 
If I bust the nose of the leader, I probably stand a better chance at coming through this a lot better if I took the leader out. <clears throat> so I'm analyzing these guys as they're approaching me, and they started forming a semicircle around me. And in that moment, a car pulls up, and the wheels went to squealing. They jumped the curb. <clears throat> Excuse me. It jumped the curb, and this guy jumps out, and he pushes two or, two or three guys down on the ground, and he starts yelling and pointing. That is Mr. Jarrett's son. Don't you ever put your hands on one of Mr. Jarrett's kids. And I was just standing there in shock and awe. This young man, his name is Willie McIntyre. Willie McIntyre had just gotten out of Joliet Prison, one of the worst prisons in America. He was a rough customer, but he lived in Grove Heights. And he here's the, here's the connection. My father mentored and engaged with young men all of the time. That was, that was his passion. His, his life was to try to redirect gangbangers, young men. My father grew up on the west side of Chicago. And oh my God, to, to see Willie McIntyre, a towering figure, big, muscular, um, jump out and tell these guys, don't ever put your hands on one of Mr. Jarrett's kids. That was very defining for me growing up as a young teenager. The impact that my father had on reaching young people, it changed my life, changed my perspective. And so I, I don't know how I'm going to have a conversation with my dad to tell him, I didn't give those guys some gas at the gas station when I know my father would have found a way to do that. I'm not my father, but I know my father would have found an entryway. And after I get off this call, I'm going to call him and tell him about that and see what he would say because that was that's his life and his passion. I've had great, great leaders, great mentors that have framed my life. So that's part of why I'm the papa that I am. I'm, my John Wayne boots ain't big enough to fill my daddy's yet. Hmm. What a story. And I can see how that immediately popped your head about someone blessed and protecting you where you're about to throw down and here comes a car out of nowhere with this towering figure. Uh, and you knew his story, going to jail and out of jail. And what? tell us a little bit about your dad. Like what allowed him to become that mentor to that guy um, and how did he get to be the mentor figure and the wearing the big John Wayne boots, like you said? <clears throat> so my dad is, um, oh my God, we, that's a novel. Uh, my father has um, been my superhero, a real life superhero from the beginning. Um, We've gone hunting, fishing. We've engaged in 
um, things in the community of Chicago. Um, my father, as a matter of fact, I came to North Carolina because my dad lived, he moved to Raleigh. And <clears throat> I, I didn't know where I would go to college um, being in high school in Chicago, it was, it was treacherous. Um, we never had a school closing. We never had a school delay. I don't care how bad the snow was. <clears throat> Everybody else made it to school on time. So you were required to make it to school on time. So in uh, the blizzard of 78 and 79 was so God awful bad that I knew that God didn't intend for human beings to endure that kind of cold. It got down to a negative 81 degrees below zero with the windshield factor. And I, I said, I, I've had enough. It's oh, too no. much. <laughs> I moved south, went to North Carolina A&T in Greensboro, <clears throat> getting away from the cold, didn't know where I was going to go to school, but I knew I needed to go somewhere other than in the north. <clears throat> I'd had enough. And so my father was in Raleigh. I came down here and uh, decided to go to school in Greensboro, North Carolina a and And uh, what made great. your father move down to Raleigh? So my father was transferred. IBM, I thought, um, IBM meant I've been moved. IBM will move you around. And my father retired from IBM after 30 years, but he was working in the research Triangle Park. And so I came down here to be with my father. Wow. And, and, um, and sorry, I interrupted you saying about your college as well. Yeah, I, I thank God for um, letting it get cold enough for me to realize I couldn't go to college in the, in the North. It was too much. What did you do after school? What was your journey like after that? How did you become the adult and start to provide financially for yourself? So I left um, A&T. I started with IBM. Worked there for a short period of time. I got a job with a company at that time, um, Computer Components Corporation. I was the first black supervisor in that company. Worked third Second shift was when I was training. I took over all the third shift. And from computer components, I went to Northern Telecom, started working at a telecommunications corporation out in the research, Triangle Park. I worked there for 15 years, and then they started downsizing and, and outsourcing a lot of the work and offered me a package. I took my package and then I started buying and selling houses and uh, went into real estate for a moment. Had no, no knowledge of how to do that, but I did it. God, by God's grace, uh, was very successful in that for a number of years. And then in 2008, um, disaster happened. Health started failing and had lots of properties and people not paying any rent and it was a very tumultuous time. I like to lost my mind. Went into a deep depression, trying to figure out how did all of this happen, you know? 
but by the grace of God, you know, God has redeemed me back, restored my health, and and I'm looking forward to getting back into real estate again and buying and selling houses again. That's that's a passion of mine. And what's your dad doing these days? My dad has moved back to his roots in Mississippi. He's um, semi-retired. Let me tell you, his number one job is cutting all of his grass. He's got 14 acres in his front yard and nine in his back. So he spends five days a week cutting grass. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's, he has a beautiful ranch-style ranch house in, in Mississippi, Oxford, Mississippi. And um, Oxford, most people might not know Oxford, but let me tell you a story about Oxford. So when I was a child, I heard the name James Meredith maybe a hundred times. Never really meant anything to me, but I've heard the name. My father was born in Oxford, Mississippi, but my grandmother moved to Chicago and raised my father away from the hardness of growing up in Mississippi was, was really tough. So my father was born in Mississippi, but was raised in Chicago. And that's where my parents raised us in Chicago. But my father wanted to migrate back to his home place. And so Hearing this name, James Meredith, it didn't dawn on me until one day I was looking on the ABC News and they were sharing that James Meredith Jr. was graduating from law school at the University of Ole Miss in Oxford, Mississippi. And I thought, hmm, James Meredith Jr. I remember James Meredith. And then in this article, they talked about the magnitude of what that meant. James Meredith went to law school at the University of Ole Miss. And at that time, the governor of Mississippi, Ray, Ray Barnett, called John Fitzgerald Kennedy and told him this is a problem for this boy to come to our university, this is a problem. I knew that James Meredith had to have the National Guard come in this little bitty town of Oxford, but I had no idea the depth. So there were 30,000 federal troops sent to a town that didn't have 30,000 people to ensure that one man can get an education at the University of Ole Miss. 30,000, not 30 bodyguards, not 300 bodyguards, not 3,000 bodyguards, 30,000 troops were sent into this small town of Oxford, Mississippi, 
for James Meredith to go to law school. This was in response to James Barnett threatening John Fitzgerald Kennedy that there is going to be trouble. He says, if you, he told John Kennedy, if you're not going to deal with this, he says, my next call is to the Ku Klux Klan and they will handle this. And that was why 30,000 men were sent to Oxford. And it blew my mind because history was happening in my father's home place. And to see James Meredith Jr. graduate from the University of Ole Miss was monumental. And for it to be on television and them to play the recording of the conversation between Ray Barnett and John Fitzgerald Kennedy, that just made my hair grow into a big afro. I could not believe that in the little place that I always knew of Oxford, where my great grandparents um, started as, as far back as I can remember in my family genealogy, um, <clears throat> my grandfather and my great grandmother, um, gosh, that that was just mind-boggling to me for my father to be born there in that place and to to watch that kind of history happen in oxford mississippi so my father lives there now he's doing extremely well he's 80 83 years old and living a very comfortable life his his only concern right now is how fast his grass grows week to week with the, when the rain rolls through. And he has to cut all of that grass. He has a zero radius, but it still work. It's still it's, work. It's still a lot of work. Oh, what I love about hearing your relationship with your dad, too, is how you're still going back to him. You know, like you just said, I'm going to call him and see what he would have done in that situation with the young men coming up and how you would respond or how he would have responded. Yeah, I'm so glad that he's still alive. So many of my friends have lost their fathers. And I've been so privileged to have had a quality relationship with my great-grandfather, both of my grandfathers. My father's still very active in my life. And he's a very <clears throat> strong presence. Well, you know, we are who we are by, based on the relationships that we've had and the experiences we've had. And it's it's so fun to hear a little bit more about your story because from the outside looking in, it's just here's this uh, boisterous, loud, fun-loving man, and you could tell very kind-hearted. And to know how how deep of a root that's been planted in your life through your family lineage and your father's example of mentoring men—not only just men, but you know, younger men, those that are really off the you know off the path. I mean, going to jail, struggling with, I'm, I'm sure, a variety of issues in the inner city of Chicago. And, and for you to see that example, and then to take hold of that example, and to do what you've done. I mean, be successful in your business career, get into real estate, overcome your health issues. And those are a lot of significant things to do in your own life. Well, I give God the glory. I'm, I'm like any other man. Um, I had to process 
um, going through adolescence as a teenager, trying to figure out who I am as a person and and what I wanted to do with my life. And um, I haven't always made all the right choices. And I look at where a lot of young young men are today, and my heart hurts because. You know, I spent a lot of time, too, going to <clears throat> prisons. I had a, been part of a prison ministry and I've gone to the jails and I facilitated working with Kings Park to provide Bibles to men in jails. But here's the number one thing about people that have been cut off from their kids and their families that are incarcerated behind prison bars many of them, 90 to 95% of them didn't have a quality relationship with their fathers. The role of a father and influence in the direction of a child is profound. When my daughter was a little bitty girl, Whenever I go to school to visit her, everybody that didn't have a daddy would run and hug me and, can you be my daddy? Can you be my daddy? Can you come home with me? The significance of a father's role in the life of their child will frame who they are when they become adults. And you know, again, man, I'm almost 60 years old. And I still fear the fact that if my wife pushed that button, I know my daddy's coming. And I would rather the police come to get me than my daddy. Because mm. he said it. They'll have mercy. He won't. Mm. So what do you do with that, that profound statement of knowing firsthand the influence that you have as a father? You know, here you are with the blended family, navigating those relationships in addition um, just to being a father um, to many more people outside of your immediate family. That's a weighty responsibility, and yet you've been able to provide for others. And I'm just, I'm just curious, you know, some people um, choose not to, not to recognize the significant role that a father has in his life and, and you've stepped into that significance. And so what has allowed you to not to be overwhelmed by that, but to just be there? Well, I watch my father, it's normal to be a father. It's, it's, it's nothing extra, it's just something that you do. Um, let, me, let me tell you about one of the best Thanksgivings. So when my kids were small, we bought some property in Orlando and said that we would go every year to Disney World and we would raise our kids there. Well, a few years, that, that was good. But the kind of person that my wife is and the kind of person that I am, we like to share in the things that we have and Justin, we made the announcement that every year we go to Disney World and we're just going to extend to her family, 
my family, and even people in my neighborhood of Grove Park. I said, meet us. Come to Florida. We'll make accommodations. <clears throat> that year, we had 39 people show up for Thanksgiving dinner in Disney World. And the impact and the joy of my heart, having all of those children and all of those husbands and wives gathered together. We, we were in Bonnet Creek. Um, Wyndham's property, Bonnet Creek, we had two presidential suites, one across the hall from each other. The kids had the run of one side and the adults had the other side. The kids, uh, I think this was a bad layout, but they had all the cakes and pies and cookies and everything in one <laughs> suite. And we had all the these turkeys and all of this dressing and and it was just unbelievable that my community of family and friends would take us up on that and join us. And we had the best Thanksgiving I ever had in life, sharing it with families. God had blessed us that way. And and it it didn't just stop at that. This past March we took a group of people with us on a cruise. Didn't know there was a pandemic going on. We were so blessed to um, travel in the Caribbean. We went to Belize, Honduras, Cozumel, Costa Maya. We ate in some beautiful places, saw some of the most amazing sunsets, and it was celebrating Chanda's uh, birthday. So for people to just love her enough to, to go on vacation with us, we've, we've done this over and over and over throughout our marriage. And it's, it's just been amazing. I mean, hosting 39 people for Thanksgiving and uh, inviting people on cruises, that's, uh, that's great radical generosity, some biblical generosity. Well, God's supernatural grace and favor has allowed us and afforded us to, um, to share our lives with other people. Not just my kids, but my kids need friends to enjoy and share these moments with as well. Mm. So you're obviously a provider. That's what sparked this conversation. And, and I, uh, I, I've come up just recently through uh, – asking someone else that I interviewed, uh, my old high school coach, I said, hey, I don't have, I don't have a final question. I need, I need some help. And he said, you know what I'd be interested in? The people that you talk with, ask them, what have they been hoping for to be provided for that they haven't yet been? So I want to ask you that, Papa John, what's something that uh, you've been hoping or praying for to be provided for that just hasn't happened yet in your life? So here's where I'm at with my daily devotion and prayer. I am thanking God every day for every step in restoring my health back 100%. I'm believing God to do great things with little, little resources. I want to be financially 
strong again. I want to be back in business. I'm believing God to um, give me clear direction on how to um, be a leader in my finances in my home. And I want my health 100% so I can tell others that you don't have to be trapped and feel hopeless that you're going to be enslaved to these drugs, these synthetic drugs for the rest of your life. I'm living proof that God can turn your life around. Um, I want to see God put me back in a place of greatness. I want to be able to take more people than 39 on vacation with me. Who would have ever thought a little poor kid from the streets of Chicago could be down here living a life like this, raising a family like the family that I've been blessed with? Only God could have done that. And I, I'm excited. I'm, I'm expecting God to finish the work in my life so that I might give him the glory because only he can do that. I can't do it on my own. But only God can do that. Thank you for listening to this episode. Before you take off, I wanted to ask if you would enjoy getting a short email from me every Wednesday called A Kind Word. It provides a little positivity to help you get over hump day. It's free and shares highlights of things that have brought me joy over the past week. If you want to start getting a kind word from me, Simply sign up at justinthomascoaching.com by entering your email address and you'll get the next one. That's justinthomascoaching.com. Thanks again for listening. Bless and protect.